One of the things that I often uh, think of when in church, and especially on a Sunday like Easter Sunday, is that there'll never be another day like this. And uh, that's repeated year after year after year when we celebrate Easter because it'll never be the same people in the same place singing the same hymns all together with the work of the Holy Spirit. And so to treasure a day like this when the body of Christ is gathered together under the word and uh, to hear the glorious gospel is something to sink our teeth into and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Now, I, uh, my family, Barbara and I lived in Chicago for almost 30 years where, while I pastored. And uh, I had occasion in those 30 years to go out east and fly back. And whenever you'd fly back east, say it was, say, from New York or uh, Detroit, you'd get up and you'd come right across Lake Michigan from east to west, start to settle down over Lake Michigan, and then you'd hit land. And then you would cross Highway 294 north and south between uh, Green Bay and Chicago come down over that, and then land in O'Hare. So people are very used to that. And there was a, uh, a, a traveler by the name of Kenneth Meyer, who was president of the seminary uh, north of us, who was, flew all the time. And he came in one time. And as he came in, he was sitting on the right side of the plane so he could look north. And he glanced through the window on the south side, and he saw cars lined up and people outside their cars and he thought oh my then he looked out his window and looked up 294 and he saw where the accident was and he saw the lights were you know pulling away from it and he thought to himself ah good when I land and get my luggage I'll be able to get home on 294 things looked a lot different on the ground than they did from the air. Completely different perspective. And uh, we have an equivalent advantage with a passage that we have heard many times and thought about and meditated over. We know where this is going. It's going to end great. Great story with a great end. We know that Lazarus is going to get home for dinner and that all that misery and anxiety below will all work out. So, now with the advantage to look down on the story from above, we're going to kind of drop in and helicopter in on this long account uh, to see what's going on in the confusing traffic of life and from above. Now as the scene opens, we gaze down on a godly home in Bethany about two miles from Jerusalem. It had been known as for uh, many things in biblical history, but in God's word, it's identified as the town of Mary and Martha. There were many who lived there, but Jesus, to God himself, it's the town of Mary and Martha, certainly others, but the town of Mary and Martha. And in this particular town and home were three hearts that believed and trusted in Jesus, 
And that meant more to heaven than all the other notable things that took place in Bethany. And it wasn't the great meals that Martha fixed, wasn't the creature comforts, the warm home, it was relationships with them. Uh, Jesus enjoyed being with him because they loved him and longed to learn from him. So it's his favorite retreat. When he gets to Bethany, he's home. That's the feeling. Now, there were three people there. There was domestic Martha, the busy kinetic soul who Jesus once chided. This is Luke, the 10th chapter, verse 41. He said to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus. But notwithstanding this occasion, Martha is magnificent. She is a woman of immense action. She seems to be very strong, kind of the domestic glue that held that family together. That was her. And then there was her sister. There was magnificent Martha, meditative Mary. She's the one who a few days later would return with an alabaster flask worth thirty to forty thousand dollars in perfume and break its neck and pour it over Jesus. Right at Passover because she sensed and she knew what was coming. She anointed him for his death. And then there's Lazarus. We don't know hardly anything about Lazarus. He seems to, he, he doesn't even seem to be taking out the trash. Uh, so we assume that he's young. Uh, I hope he was young. And uh, doesn't have significant responsibilities. We know a lot about it, except that Jesus loved him, right? Now, as we look down in this, this loving household, it is in dismal disarray, somber, because Lazarus has become deathly ill. Two pale, worried women are scurrying about. And despite their attention, he is sinking deeper and deeper, and then a languid distance starts to fill his eyes and his countenance, and they knew he was dying. So frantic, those two sisters sent word to Jesus. You see it in verse 3. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Didn't say Lazarus is ill. He whom you love is ill. It's an interesting designation, isn't it? Um, I think this, this affectionate identification, he whom you love, was the code word for Lazarus. I think that's what the sisters called him all the time, he whom you love. You're, you're kind of favored one. I, I, I think I understand the feeling of this because um, your pastor, our son, Carrie Hughes is fourth. He's the last child. And uh, he was full of it and a lot of fun. And his sisters always said, 
he's the baby. They still say it today. I think I understand what's going on with he whom you love. And they assume when they said this, the Lord would immediately make the journey attend to his favorite. But that isn't to be because Jesus lingered, lingered two more days during the space of which the boy died. And the text makes it clear that Jesus had supernatural knowledge that he would die and did die. So, from ground level, Miss Life's traffic, Miss the sirens and flashing lights, it appears that he neither understands nor cares or perhaps even knows what's going on. That's how it looks from ground level. But high above the traffic, Jesus sees an end that is sublime. And in fact, he has ordained that end from the beginning of time. So here's essential wisdom. Because when we're ravaged by life and it's so difficult to believe that it really loves us, God knows and presides and is all-powerful. And he has a, listen to this on Easter, a love-drenched ending in mind for all of us. It's yet to be revealed. And we can be sure of this. On this Resurrection Sunday, never to be repeated, 2023, the ultimate glory far exceeds what Lazarus would soon experience in Bethany. It's going to go beyond what happened to Lazarus on that day. Now, when Lazarus stopped breathing, his haggard sisters rose from his bedside and a cry went up, a wail went up from their house to all the streets in Bethany. And he was prepared for burial. He was dressed in a white linen gown, touchingly called a traveling dress. And then he was swaddled and wrapped with cloths and spices. And then his heart broken sisters led his body to the grave and at the tomb some brief speeches were made and then the mourners and professional mourners formed a kind of gauntlet as they wailed and they passed on back toward home. Well, by the time our Lord had elected to come to them, it was the fourth day the day when the ritual of mourning reached its loudest because the body was decaying. So if you're in and around that tomb, it has the stench of hopelessness, of a decaying human body. Well, moving on to Jesus and Martha in verses 17 through 27, Martha evidently had been quietly made aware that the Lord 
was outside Bethany. He had returned. So she likely slipped out unseen and went to the outskirts of town to meet him alone. There she stood, if you can get the scene, pale, grieving, weary, totally disheveled. Behind her are the, the low profile of the buildings of Bethany, and before her stood the road-traveled Christ and his dusty men. Quite a scene. She's face to face with Jesus. Martha spoke first, verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think the, the, that refrain, Lord, if you'd have been here, had, had come from her and her sister's lips repeatedly. If, if, if the Lord was here, if the Lord was here, because you find the exact same phrase later in verse 32, Mary saying the exact same phrase when she talks to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The weight had been agonizing. They thought that he would surely come any moment and save the day. And finally, in intense sorrow, they repeatedly assured one another, if only he'd come, Lazarus would not have died. Now, Martha's words are almost a reproof. But she caught herself, and you see it in verse 22, after she said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, she said, but even now... I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. It was face-to-face, uh, -face, not fully serious, because she also objected that, a little later that he was rotting and couldn't imagine anything happening. But Martha is so beautiful straining to exercise her faith in tear-blinding grief. This is an exquisite soul face-to-face -face with Jesus. 18 inches apart, 20 inches, a yard, but looking into Jesus' eyes. And Jesus said to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. That's a masterpiece of ambiguity. I mean, she hears that. On one level, your brother will rise again to be taken as a reference to final resurrection. But he's saying, death won't have the final word, Martha, at the great resurrection, Lazarus will be restored to bodily life. Take heart. That's what she thought she could have heard. But on another level... Jesus was promising immediate resurrection for Lazarus. And the point escapes Martha for a moment and she answers, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Of course I believe in the resurrection. With this comes one of Jesus' seven great I am sayings of John's gospel. I'll just, I'll just repeat the seven sayings for you. This comes in about number six, I think, but I won't put that one in it. But he, these are the I am saying, 
I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. But here, Jesus declares to magnificent Martha, and this is what I want us all to lay our eyes on in verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's looking at her in the eyes and he says to her, do you believe this? Now I want us to notice, he didn't say, I have resurrection power. I do resurrections. I will be resurrected. All of which he could say about himself. Rather, he says, I am the resurrection. Now listen, my being is the resurrection. I am the ontologically the resurrection. Resurrection is here in me. Moi. He's talking to her face to face. And so on that first Easter morning, which is coming at Passover soon, at Passover, Jesus, this I am the resurrection, guess what? Exploded from the tomb. He is eternal, I am. There is no resurrection apart from him. He is the resurrection. And only those in him can know the resurrection. Now, I really laid on that, but don't forget the words that follow. I am the life. All life is in him. There is no eternal life apart from him. John says this repeatedly, John 1.4, in him was life, and this life was the light of men. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father apart from me. So there stands Martha face to face, and Jesus is calling her to believe. He hasn't been resurrected from the dead. She's seen no resurrection. But look closely at the declaration because you see the word believe three times. Look back at verses 25 and 26. A great statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, first instance, Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes, second instance, in me shall never die. Do you believe in this third instance? Jesus is not asking if she believes that he's about to raise her brother from the dead. Rather, he is asking for her to declare her personal trust in him as the resurrection and the life. Face to face, outside of Bethany. Bethany. 
before he goes in. Now, listen to Martha in verse 27. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She goes far beyond what he asked. Her answer, yes, Lord, affirms her personal trust in him as the resurrection and the life and her personal confidence that he is the Christ, the Messiah, and the resurrection. Now, her words, yes, Lord, I believe, this is the only technical thing I'll say about this, is in the Greek perfect tense, which means I believe and will continue believing. It's the Greek perfect tense. She has believed it, and her belief stands. So I want to say to everyone, so much, I, 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 I actually understand why Martha gets put down, you know, Martha, you're busy about so many things. Mary's chosen the good thing. Well, yeah, on that occasion. But she is magnificent. Her confession is at least as deep as Peter's profound confession. You know what he said? You are the Christ. Well, she adds about three things to that that she believes. It's more defined. Magnificent, magnificent Martha. Never forget that. While Martha was meeting the Lord, Mary was back at the house. And there in the house, all the furniture was turned backwards and faced the wall as was traditional in funerals. The mourners were either sitting on the ground or on stools that they had brought. And after the sisters had returned from the grave, they had all eaten together a somber meal, doesn't sound too good to me, of lentils, boiled eggs, and round loaves of bread. The spherical idea that life is rolling on into eternity. I don't know if Mary had eaten much since then. She herself is certainly unkempt and barefoot because all mourners were committed not to washing themselves or wearing sandals. They're all barefoot and disheveled. Like some of you ladies were when you were eight years old. Never since then. The traditional mourning has reached its peak because Lazarus' body is decomposing. So now Martha summons her meditative sister Mary, and this is verses 28 to 32. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she arose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him, still the same spot. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying to him, 
Same thing her sister said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, there's only a, t uh, not, not time this morning for more than a brief reference to Jesus' response. And this is in verses 33 and 34. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Now, it is inadequate to merely note in that phrase, he was deeply moved in spirit, that that's just simply it, or that he groaned in spirit or he sighed heavily because he's indignant. That word, deeply moved in spirit, is also used for the sound of a horse snorting in a, 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 aggressively. And so there's some anger here. He's bristling. He is indignant at two things. Death itself, which he's come to face, and the dismay and unbelief of those around. Uh, his display of emotions has been interpreted in two ways by the Jews, both interpretations right and wrong at the same time. To some, Jesus' tears before Lazarus' tomb testified to how much he loved him. Well, he did love him. There's no doubt about that. But Jesus' tears were hardly evidence of the way they imagined it because they understood his grief as despairing and it wasn't despairing. And then others said he had the power to heal others. He didn't do him, so what, what is going on with him? And there's a kind of disbelief. Now, you come to Jesus and Lazarus in verses 38 to 44. A typical tomb in Jesus' day was hollowed out room, perhaps in a hillside. And the way it was constructed, typical way those tombs were, is that it had three carved out shelves on each side and two in the back. So you've got your basic Boy Scout lodge for eight, you know, eight bunks in there. And uh, typically some of those were occupied. So when the tomb was open, there were the bones of others in there and perhaps a shelf for Lazarus. Agitated, Jesus asked the stone to be removed, and Martha objected. You know, there's an aroma. With all this misery, why open the grave and let out the stench? Why look at the face of our dear brother rotting? Of course, she didn't have the slightest about what Jesus was going to do. And in verse 40, Jesus insisted, Did I not tell you that if you believed, there's the word again, you would see the glory of God? So the stone was removed, and Lazarus' freshly wrapped body was in view in his traveling dress and all the swaddling. And the tense crowd pressed closer and quieted 
No weeping now. Intense comprehension only. And then our Lord's most eyes were fixed on a darkness. So they read in verses 41 through 42. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, obviously, to heaven and said, here's a prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may, what, believe that you sent me. And then Jesus called out with a loud voice. I don't know how loud I should do this. Lazarus, come forth. That raw authority. And then they saw movement. Lazarus' body edged off the shelf and then stood erect, shuffling out mummy-like into the light. I've seen medieval pictures of this. It has to be that way. He comes out like this. Now, it just tells us at the end of our text, very cryptically, this is in verse 40, for, uh, excuse me, 44, the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, them, unbind him and let him go. Now that's, that's very cryptic. And I think I'd like to put a little imagination to this. He comes out and he's standing there and Jesus says, unbind him, and here come Mary and Martha, and they're unwrapping him and throwing the wrappings aside into the air. They are weeping and hugging and dancing barefoot, kind of having a hoedown. It's my imagination, but it's probably pretty close. I mean, these are Hebrews. They're not Bostonians. <laughs> What a spectacle from above. Lazarus and his sisters circling in joy midst fallen grave clothes, shouts echoing off the rocky landscape to heaven. He's alive. It was him, and he's in his youthful body. It really is young Lazarus, a bodily resurrection. Not some Gnostic foolishness that's floating around in woke culture today. The real thing. Like your bodies are going to be resurrected. And Jesus is going to give you new bodies. And heaven knew what it was. It was an actual, real-life parable, the life-giving power of Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. He is the resurrection. In his person. And come Easter morning, sometime this morning, sometime on Easter day, Jesus catapulted from the grave. And Easter resurrection awaits all his children. I'm just going to have you turn. I'm just going to read this. I don't want to, you should look at it. It's 1 Thessalonians 4 because this is what awaits his children. First Thessalonians 4, 
I'll just pick it up in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command. Now that's Jesus. And with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's what's coming, brothers and sisters. And we will dance on resurrection feet. Our songs will echo off the stars. That's what heaven is telling us. With this, there's another divine perspective which we are to grasp in the midst of earth's traffic. Resurrection is for those who believe. I'll just read the verses out of our text. Verse 15. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. Verses 41 and 42, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifting up his eyes said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing here that they may believe. Do you know what the theme of the book of John is? A lot of you do because it's John 20, 31. You want to know what the theme of John is? It sums it up in one sentence. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, let's put our eyes again on verses 25 and 26. If you have your Bibles, you can do it. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection of life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, the final belief, do you believe this? That's the question for us this morning. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Do you believe that you believe it, but don't really believe it? Do you believe it? I mean, really believe it? That is the question. And I want to say the most important thing for everyone sitting here this morning is this. What you believe or think about Jesus is the most important thing about you beyond anything. Anything. Now, I'm the, I'm the pastor's father, so I can yell if I want, I guess. <laughs> Do you believe it? Yes. Do you truly believe it? Yes. He is risen. He is risen Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen.